was very thankful last week for Matt and his message to us from James. And the reminder that though we often make our plans, we actually don't know our end. God is the one who we should have in mind when we are preparing for things. And so, uh, Matt is, and his fiance Jayla, when they get married here in a few months, um, they will actually be moving down to South Carolina to finish the last couple of years of Matt's pastor's college with uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, one of our sister churches. And Andrew Dion, their pastor, and Renton Rathbun, one of their elders, are actually two of our elders. And so we will probably hear from Matt, see Matt, from time to time through that relationship. And so we're very glad for that. There are five other men who are at, at Pastors College currently, and I was just on the phone with Stephen Baker, who's the dean of the college, this past week, and talking about things, and um, pray that God would continue to raise up students for the college, um, both internally, so from within our churches, but also outside our churches, because um, we desire uh, a trained men to be pastors and shepherds. And so be praying for that, if you would. All right, so this morning, um, we're going to be in Romans 12, first couple of verses, and you know, as we start the new year, this is going to be basically like a New Year's Sermon Part 2, Matt was last week, Matt this week. Um, the question that often comes to our mind is, what, what are we supposed to do in whatever situation we find ourselves in? And we often think that the will of God is a mystical, kind of ethereal thing that belongs to the super spiritual folks among us. We've actually kind of given it this... You know, they used to have uh, prophetesses and stuff that uh, it would be up in the mountain and have to climb the mountain and go talk to the mystic and they would go into a trance and they'd deliver you the word. Um, the will of God is not like that. It's just not. It's not mystical. It's not far off. It's not in the outer reaches of space. It's not ethereal. It is spiritual, but it, we tend to overemphasize the idea of what spiritual actually means. Uh, it's it's real. It's tangible. We can find the will of God, and it's not that far from each one of us. And so this morning we're going to talk about that from Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your rational service or your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are very, very grateful this morning to have before us your word. We pray that you would give our hearts the things that we need this morning, by the power of your spirit. Amen. So, the book of Romans is one of, it's kind of, a lot of theologians, a lot of pastors call it the pinnacle of Christian thought. And I think that's a good idea of what is going on in the 
book of Romans. It just gives this, this detailed view of what salvation really is and what salvation does and what the reaction we should have to it is. And Romans chapter 12 is, is a little bit of a linchpin, a turning point, where much of the first 11 chapters are truths, and then the last several chapters are the application of those truths. That's not totally true. There's application throughout the book of Romans, and there's truths throughout the last chapters. But that's generally true. And so the end of Romans chapter 11 ends with this. Um, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So you have this, this doxology, this huge emphatic statement of the bigness and of God, and it includes quotes from Scripture, and it says things like how unsearchable is God. How inscrutable, how, how out of our own logic is God. And then I just said before I prayed that God is actually not that hard to understand and that he's not that far off from us. And yet the end of Romans 11 says almost the exact opposite. So who's lying? Me or Scripture? Well, Scripture is not lying, but it's not saying the sort of thing that we tend to think it's saying. Romans 11 ends with that doxology because the few chapters before it, Paul has been laying out this eternal plan of redemption that God had. And the point of it is the fact that none of us, not a single one of us, could ever have thought up the perfect plan of redemption that would end with Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth to die and be raised again so that all those who are in him would be found in him and live with him forever in eternal paradise. We could not have thought that up. We tend to think as Christians that it's just natural, like this is just so totally logical that even the worst pagan can think of how to save the world. None of us, none of us could have thought up the eternal redemption of God. And so the point of Romans 11 ending with how inscrutable are his ways it's just to say that we cannot fathom the depth of the plans of God in his eternal mind. That he has secret things. Uh, we talked in, on Wednesday's study about this verse in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. And Moses there says, therefore, the secret things secret things, the inscrutable things, this divine plan, this eternal redemption, this the electing grace of God, the purposes of God for all eternity, those things, the secret things, belong to the Lord our God. So those are not for us. Those are just not for us. One of the things we, we just kind of glazed over on Wednesday was, you know, where did Satan come from? When was he created? How did that all go down? And the reality is we have no idea. We have some guesses about when he was created. Probably when the stars were created. Probably. But we don't know for sure. 
And we don't know how he was created. We don't know how many angels were created. We don't know when he fell from heaven, other than it was before he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. We don't know a thousand things about that. They belong to God. He knows those things. And he has said, you don't need to know those things. That belongs to me. That is one of my secret things. Uh, older theologians especially, theologians especially, guys like John Calvin, often say in their writings, this is a secret thing, and it's arrogance to presume that you should know these things. Um, that's not to say we can't ask questions and try and find things out. That's not the point. The point is, when you get to the point where you reach the limit, that's where you say, okay, we're at the limit. We found it. Now we go back down to figure out how all this works out. So the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we might do all the words of the law. The revealed things belong to us and to our children that we might do them. This is what we generally think of as what is the will of God. Romans 11 ends with what is the eternal plan of God, and that is outside the bounds of our knowledge. We didn't think it up. We didn't make it happen. It is God's alone. It is secret. It is His. It's inscrutable. It's unsearchable. We can't get there. And Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice and to be renewed in your mind so that you might know what the will of God is. That there is another aspect of the will of God that is very close to us, right in front of us, tangible to us. It's not far off. It doesn't belong to the secret treasure house of God. It's here. A way you might think of it is this. Job says that there are storehouses of snow that belong to God. Now it snowed here last week. And the idea in Job is not that God has up in heaven somewhere a big barn full of snow and then he just kind of scoops a shovel in there and sprinkles it around. Although that's a funny image for a kid to have. The idea is that he is the controller. That there actually is no way to explain the weather finally other than to say, God. And uh, an honest meteorologist or those who study the weather will, will say that. At the end of the day, no matter how many models they run, no matter how many instruments they use, weather is still unpredictable because God is actually the one who has the storehouses of snow. So that's his secret thing. What belongs to us then? Snow belongs to us. Right? And who better to know that than children who know immediately that snow is on the ground for me. That's, that's who the snow is for. It is for my boots and my snow pants and my sled. That's what that snow was put on the ground for. That's the way we need to think of God's gifts to us in knowing his will. There are secret things about how he did it, when he did it, why he did it that belong to him. He has given us real stuff. And it's for us. It's really for us. We should be just as excited as the kids who put on their snow boots and thankfully shoveled my driveway before I got home. 
we should be just as excited as them about the stone, about the revealed things in God's Word that are for us. We shouldn't spend our time trying to figure out how it snows, why it snows, what is the certain thing that's going to happen. We can know it to a limit. We can know that a cold front mixed with this much and this much air and you know this much moisture in the air is probably going to produce this much snow. But even then, our predictions are usually one to three inches, two to four inches, three to six inches, six to 12 inches. The more snow there is, the bigger the variable gets, two to three feet, you know? But who knows exactly, not just how deep the snow will be, but how many millions of snowflakes there will be. God, every single time, has said, I'll put 10 gazillion snowflakes on this spot, on this day, at this hour, at this rate, they will fall. And this one will go this way, and this one will go this way. And he arranges the whole thing. That's his secret. But the stuff that lands, that's us. That's ours. So what is landed above the secret things of God? This. This landed. And I don't mean it in some, oh, just, no. Spaceship dropped it out of the air and the apostles picked it up and there it is. I mean, this is the thing. This is the revealed stuff. This is the snow on the ground. We might not understand exactly all the ways that it got here. We know some of what is true about how it got here. That's inspired by God. God breathed. That men wrote it. That men searched things out. That men understood what they were writing that they weren't in a cave somewhere, humming a ridiculous tune, and then they woke up and the Bible was in front of them. That's not how the Word of God came to us. We know that. But now we have it. So what do we do? What do we do with the revealed things? Well, we use them. We use the revealed things. We don't just look out the window at them and admire them or bemoan them, as most of us do with snow, uh, thinking, well, I guess I'm not going outside today, or tomorrow, or the next day. That's what most of us do with snow, right? And that is, unfortunately, how most of us treat the Word of God. That when we read the Word of God, and we see it, we think, well, that isn't exactly what I was hoping for. When I woke up this morning, I didn't really care to find out that it had snowed and that there was ice on the ground. When you read God's Word, you think, I don't, didn't really want to know that. I think I'll just kind of leave it there, not touch it, not go play with it, not make a sled and go run it out of And I say that somewhat in jest, but that is, in fact, what we often do with the Word. And here in Romans chapter 12, Paul lays it out exactly how we do it. He says, this is, this is what we need to do now that we have the revealed things, the truth, the good stuff. The snow is on the ground. The doctrine is here. The truth is here. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, so the fact that you have been bought by Christ, are owned by Him, that He has given you grace and His Spirit, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
living sacrifice. That is, in fact, the whole thing. Think about the snow. The reason we don't like it is because it's cold, causes accidents, it's slippery, work is involved, we have to shovel it, all these sorts of things. That's how we as adults think of snow. Children do not think of snow like that. Even the work they do is fun for them because it's a delight to have this thing that's unusual, it's different, it's a gift. They look at sacrifice very differently. They're willing to sacrifice their fingers and toes and cold, the nose. They're willing to give up their breath. They're willing to give up their energy in a snow shovel. Willingly and happily. That should be the way we look at it, the way we go about the Christian life of self-sacrifice, dying to ourselves. But there's actually great joy to be had enjoy the fact that even though we're dying, even though parts of us are getting cut off and rubbed off by God and His Spirit, we're actually having a pretty good time. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is what has been revealed to us. Self-sacrifice. Romans chapter 6 says, you were dead to, you are dead to sin. Now your job is to reckon that to be true, to actually do the work of being dead to sin. So when you think this thought, and it's bad, and it's against God, you cut it off. And it produces in you a joy, a happiness, even though part of you is dead now, the old self being cut off, being put to death. The new self is being put on. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, but present yourselves as members for righteousness. That's how Romans 6 puts it. It's the same language, present yourselves. Present yourselves for what? As a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. I spoke at the beginning about this idea of like this ethereal, we're going to find the will of God in some mountain mystic weirdness. That's generally how we act. That the will of God is to be found in a contemplative prayer and really doesn't result in anything other than some sort of spiritual emotion that we get from that contemplative prayer. But the self-sacrifice of the Christian is real. It's tangible. It actually costs you physically. It's not just up in your mind and you've had a happy place, a happy thought with God but results in self-sacrifice, in death. That's the logical outworking. Um, so the verse ends, holy and acceptable God, which is the translation of the ESV has your spiritual worship. Um, if you look though, most of your Bibles will have a footnote, and at the bottom, it'll say your rational service, or something like that. And in general, this is just in general, this is not about the sermon. If you see that anything in your Bible has a footnote, go read the footnote, and 99 times out of 100, it will be more helpful than the way the translator decided that you said. Because when you read, this is your spiritual worship. You tend to take it up into the mind, into the spirit realm. But what's actually going on is, is the word logic. 
That's the Greek word, logikos. It's the word logic, it's rational. It's the natural outworking of knowing the truths of God and how he has saved you. The natural, rational, logical conclusion is self-sacrifice. That is your spiritual service. It is the rational service of self-sacrifice. It's the logical outworking of the Christian faith. That is the thing that pleases God. The secondary part, so it's not enough just to like, you know, experience the cold, so to speak. So if you went outside and it snowed out, it was 10 degrees out, and you just got cold. That's no fun. Even for a kid, that's no fun. Right? I remember one of the worst days of my life as far as cold is concerned was when I was a freshman in high school. I was on the football team, and we were very good. I didn't play because I was a freshman. Uh, but you had the option as a freshman to stay on with the team as they proceeded down sectionals and regionals and semi-state and all this stuff. And so I stayed on. Most of us did. Semi-state was up at Jimtown in northern Indiana. I don't know what the date was. It's the week before Thanksgiving, basically. And it was unbelievably cold. Unbelievably cold. And so I borrowed some tights from a guy because... The week before, I was pretty cold, and even though I felt quite unmanly to put on a pair of tights, it's like, I, I don't play. I don't even work up a sweat during the warm-ups. I'm going to freeze to death if I don't put some clothes on. So I wore tights, I had almost two sets of socks on, I had gloves, and I got one of the quarterback warmer things you like stick your hands in, and had like three of those heat packs, and I was still frozen solid because it was like four degrees. And we're just, I'm just standing there for two hours in a football game, not moving. You know, just, it was not fun for me. Okay? So self-sacrifice, just to be self-sacrificing, is not all the Christian life is. There's a second part. How do we do it? How do we, how do we achieve the self-sacrifice? Two ways. Do not be conformed to this world. That's the chopping off part. That's the, the, the experience of the death of parts of you. Do not be conformed to this world. You who stole no longer steal, but rather work so that you can give. That's, that's that. Okay. Find your sin. Stop doing it, because that's being conformed to the world. Instead, do this over here. But it's more than that for the Christian. Because anybody, anybody in the world can do moral things that are good. They can stop stealing and they can start working. Anybody can do that. What also has to happen for the Christian? Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? What is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God? Something has to happen, not just physically, but internally. Being, be renewed. It's the word for metamorphosis. It's the butterfly in the cocoon that comes out, that change. That's what is being told there. Be transformed. How does a caterpillar become a butterfly? 
Does he go into the cocoon? Infinity. Okay. Now, butterfly body, begin to do this and that and change this way. Protrude out wings and get them all squished up. And then, no, no, the butterfly builds the cocoon and allows the transformation to happen. What is our cocoon? Be renewed by the trans. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What has to happen for the Christian to be self sacrificing? His mind has to be transformed. Your mind has to be transformed. And that happens little by little. Renewal of your minds. And so it doesn't mean that as soon as you become a Christian, you will know all the perfect will of God, and you will begin to do it. That's not how it works. And it doesn't mean after you've been a Christian for 30 years, you know the perfect will of God, and you do it. It does mean that little by little, you will let the Word of God rule over you. You will be transformed by it, because the Spirit is at work in you. No one can know the mind of God except the Spirit. But God has given us His Spirit as well. And so what it is, is little by little, week by week, day by day, you read something and you think, I don't particularly like that. It could be almost anything, right? I'm reading, uh, I have a Bible app, and uh, it has a whole bunch of different like uh, daily readings you can subscribe to. And so I'm married, and there's a 30-day thing on marriage, and I started, I don't know, a week or so ago. It's been very fascinating, this 30 days reading on marriage, because what I expected to find most of the Bible readings that you subscribe to have all the pleasant things of Scripture in them, right? So it would be like, you know, an Adam knew wife is Eve and he conceived and bore a son and called his name Seth. And that sort of thing, the happy things of marriage. And my goodness, almost every day I think, why did they include this passage? And it's things like Abraham telling Abimelech that his wife is his sister. That happened while they were married, and so that's a reading in the stuff on marriage, and I was like, Okay. And then the next one is the second time when he does that to the king of Egypt. And then the next reading is when his son, Isaac, does it to another king. I said, what is this? And then just this morning, I said to my wife, you'll never guess what the reading was. The reading was this morning when David uh, um, has gotten the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Lord, back into the hands of the Israelites, and he dances just his cloth on, naked before people. And his wife, Michael, is ashamed of him and rebukes him. And then God makes her barren. That was the reading this morning on marriage. That's the kind of stuff that's very difficult. Right? The stuff that we don't like. Who wants to read about a marriage problem so bad that God curses the wife and makes her barren? Who wants to read that and go, all right, now you apply that to your marriage. Let's see how you deal with that. Let's, let's have you be renewed in your mind about that. And what has occurred to me over the last week reading all these things uh, in this like, daily reading on marriage is the fact that I don't take my sin or my wife's sin seriously at all when it comes to marriage. At all. 
Because what the, the theme of all these readings has been is we sin in marriage and we think it's no big deal, but it will cause the downfall of kingdoms if we're not careful. And who wants to think about that? Who wants to think that me being lazy and not helping my wife at night and her getting upset with me because I'm not doing anything could cause the ruination of my children? Who wants to think that? I don't want to think that's miserable thing. It's uncomfortable. It's cold out. I will just go back inside where I didn't have to think about the fact that my sin makes the room cold. I'll just go sit by the fire and ignore it. That's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that is a, a dual concept. We are justified by grace through faith. That is a singular act of God. Justification. It happens at a point in time. It was elect before the foundation of the world, and at some point, God made you born again. And you believed. That is a singular act of God. Godward action only. You don't participate in it other than to be the recipients of grace. From that moment forward, we work in tandem with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work to renew our minds. He is the one that actually is making us transform. He's the one getting all the stuff out so that our wings are ready when we come out of the cocoon. And we also participate in this. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and tremor. Do the work. Be renewed. Think about it. Let just read the word and then do the word and think about the word and, and wonder what it is about the word that you don't like that day. Do it with fear and trembling for, because it is God who is at work in you. Both the will and to work according to his good pleasure. Why do we work with fear and trembling? Because God is at work in us, both to give us the will to do it and the hands and feet to make a move. We do it because we trust God will actually do something with our lives, that our sacrifice will actually mean something, that God will be pleased by it. We do it trusting that God will give us joy. Joy like a child who is out in the cold playing in the snow instead of grumbling like an adult who has to shovel the wall. We trust that God will do these things for us. The Holy Spirit, and this is how I'll close, the Holy Spirit is the key to this. Romans chapter 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Whoever thus serves God is acceptable what? In his sacrifice. He presents his sacrifice, his living sacrifice, his acceptable sacrifice, and then God, through the Holy Spirit, accepts the sacrifice. 
So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Because we trust in a good God who saved us, we trust in the future grace of God that he will fulfill his work in us and make us renewed in his image and help us to self-sacrifice to be the logical outworking of our Christian faith. We do it because we trust the Spirit's power in us. Not because we trust ourselves to get this work done. Not because we think we can do it and others can't. But because God has given us promise in the Spirit. A promise in the Spirit that he will complete this work in you. He will do it. So work it out. Pursue the will of God. It's not far off. It's not difficult to understand. It's not up in some cave, in some mystic land. It's just right here. It's just open the Bible, read it, and let your mind and heart and emotions and actions be changed. Let the Spirit do its work. Let Him come and be the transformation in your life. This is the whole Christian life. It's everything. It's the, from the very beginning when you were born of God to the very end of your life is this right here. How do you know the will of God? How can you discern? Renew your mind to the Word so that you may self-sacrifice and do it all because the power of God is working through the Holy Spirit. Then you will be able to figure out. Then you will know. What would please God do? What would actually please God? Not what's what do I think is a good thing? What do I what are the, you know, read a book, what do they think? What will please God? What will please him? It may be a thousand different things. But I guarantee it's different than we were the day before. Because every day God calls us to something. Faithful living in Him. That is the Christian life. All the time, the sacrifice pleasing to God, the renewal of the mind, so that we will know the will of God and we will do it. Close with a quote from Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a missionary uh, in the 50s. He died at the hands of the men he was trying to take the gospel to. He and four other men. Speared to death on an island in the middle of the Amazon. A few years before Jim and his wife Elizabeth Elliott, whose name you may know, Elizabeth Elliott, is his wife. A few years before that, when he was in college up at Wheaton, he wrote in his diary, He is no fool. Who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. Self-sacrifice. His life. Jim was willing to give his life. Whatever it cost. However much of God required it. Whether it was a little bit of his life or the whole of it. At the end of a spear. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. You cannot keep your life. It is God's. Not a fool, though. You don't keep it so that you may gain 
what you cannot lose. This eternal life of God by the power of the Spirit. This is the Christian life. Let's live it. Let's make it our job this year. Grow and renew our minds. Grow in what it means to be self-sacrificing. Grow by the power of the Spirit in ways that we couldn't even begin to think right now, January 9th. A year from now, what we will look like in the eyes of God. How we will have transformed us by the power of the Spirit. Let's stay this morning and pray Father, we are very grateful for the work of your spirits. We pray, Father, that we would be working all the time to be a sacrifice pleasing to you, to be renewed in our mind, that we would not be that we're working not to be conformed to this world, and Father, behind all of this, in humility and humbleness, we ask, give us your spirit. Give us your spirit. Give us power to do these things. Help us to do these things reliant on you, hoping in your grace, trusting in your love. We pray this in the name of your Son.